0: Let's see if I, oh, okay. (laughs) Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You'd better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let us pray. Prepare our hearts, O God, to hear and accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I became a Christian in the early 70s, and soon after was invited to participate in a small group. Our first Bible study was using the book The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, in which Lindsey related current events and the nations of the world to biblical prophecies. While he made no predictions about timing, Lindsey's book gave you the feeling that Jesus will be coming back any second. It was so exciting, I can't begin to tell you, I'd never heard these things before. And I imagine that's exactly how the first Christians felt, because it's clear from Scripture that early on, they thought Jesus was coming again soon. Well, one night, a newlywed couple visited our Bible study. They had just returned from their honeymoon and talked about their plans to fix up their new little house. I will never forget my reaction when they started talking about the new cupboards they were going to hang in their kitchen. Now, to really get this, you have to understand something about me. One of my favorite things in all the world is home design and decorating. I could do it from the minute I wake up until long past my bedtime and lose all track of time. But in that moment, at that time when I was immersed in the imminent rapture of the church, my only thought was, Jesus is coming back any minute. How can you even think about hanging new cupboards? What does it matter? Well, some time passed and I no longer made the error of being obsessed by Jesus' return. Instead, for many years, I made the opposite error and didn't give a thought to Jesus coming again. In describing that kind of thing where we go from one error to its opposite, Martin Luther compared humanity to a drunkard who, falling off his horse on the right, falls off at next time on the left. Well, Jesus is coming again, C.S. Lewis, in his essay entitled The World's Last Night, from which I got the title of this sermon, said that Jesus' teaching on the subject of the second coming quite clearly consisted of three propositions. Number one, that he will certainly return. Number two, that we can't possibly find out when. And number three, that therefore we must always be ready for him. That is precisely what our text today is about. So let's take a closer look at what Jesus is telling us in this parable. First of all, some context. There are five discourses of Jesus in the book of Matthew. This parable takes place in the very last one. It's called the Olivet Discourse and takes place only three days before his crucifixion. Here's how it unfolds. Jesus had gone into the temple, and while he was teaching, the religious leaders came along and tried to pick a fight with him. Standard fare. They would ask him questions, attempting to trip him up. He would answer wisely and tell parables that were obviously against them. After asking the Pharisees a question that they could not answer without getting themselves into trouble with the people, Jesus told his disciples, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, Therefore, do what they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, because they do not practice what they teach. Now remember that Jesus said that, because that is close to the heart of our parable today. The next thing that happens is that Jesus leaves the temple with his disciples. As they're leaving, the disciples point out the temple buildings, and wow, are not they great. Jesus' response to them was that the buildings would all be destroyed. Not one stone would be left. another. And in fact, that happened in 70 A.D. when Rome sacked Jerusalem. Then they went out on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus told his disciples the signs of the end of the age and of his return. Of course, they wanted to know when all these things were going to happen. Who wouldn't? He told them explicitly, though, that no one except the Father knows the day or the hour, not even him. He said it will be like the days before the flood. Life will be going on as usual, so that we would need to watch for the signs because he will come at an unexpected time. In the very last part of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus told them four parables. You've probably heard some or all of these. One was the parable of the faithful and unfaithful slaves. Second was the parable about the 10 bridesmaids, which we're talking about today. The third is the parable of the talents, or the faithful and unfaithful stewards. And fourth, the sheep and the goats, the separation of the sheep and the goats. All these parables were about being ready for his coming. So let's zoom in on the parable of the ten bridesmaids. This parable is about a wedding, and Jesus is the bridegroom. In the Old Testament, God was portrayed as the husband of Israel. Their relationship was a covenantal relationship. And in the New Testament, Jesus is portrayed as the bridegroom of the church. Ancient Jewish wedding customs will help us understand this parable and also help us to appreciate the rich imagery of the church as the bride of Christ and our parallels with those wedding customs, including the waiting period for His return. There are two main stages to the ancient Jewish wedding tradition. The first part is the betrothal and, or marriage arrangement and signing of the contract, and it corresponds to the first advent of Christ. The second stage is the consummation and celebration, and corresponds to his second coming. And in between, there is this gap, this waiting period. In the betrothal stage, the first step is the shiduken, or the match. It's initiated by the father of the groom, who chooses the bride for his son. An agent may or may not be used. For example, Abraham sent his slave to get a wife for his son Isaac. A special note, especially given the time in history, is that the consent of the bride was always required. You might remember that Rebecca had to agree to go with Abraham's slave. The parallel to the church is that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would bear fruit. And of course, we must agree to follow Jesus. Now, the next part of the betrothal stage is that gifts are given. And the very most important one is the mohar or bride price. It was actually required by law. It was paid by the father of the groom to the father of the bride, and it represented the value of the bride. The parallel to the church in this is really clear. Our heavenly father gave his son for us. Jesus paid the bride price for us, his bride, the church, with his own blood. As Paul tells us, we were bought with a price. Another set of gifts was the matan or love gifts, given by the groom to the bride. Those were not something that was required, but a voluntary expression of love. Believers are given love gifts also, such as eternal life and peace, just to name two. A third type of gift was the shilohim, or dowry. It was given to the bride by her father to equip her for her new life. We believers are given gifts also to equip us for our new life in Christ, the Holy Spirit, and spiritual gifts. And then there was the marriage contract, the ketubah. It was a written document stating the mohar, or the bride price, the rights of the bride, and the promises of the groom. Our ketubah is the New Testament. It tells us of the price that Jesus paid for our sins, as well as God's love and mercy and grace, and his exceedingly great and wonderful promises to us. The betrothal, the caducean, is sealed with the cup of acceptance. For the church also, there was a cup to seal the covenantal relationship between us and our savior, our bridegroom. At the last supper, Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. The betrothal is legally binding at this point. It could not be broken except with a certificate of divorce. But the bride and groom do not live together yet as husband and wife. So, as the waiting period, this in-between time, of the betrothal begins, the groom returns to his father's house to prepare a dwelling place for he and his bride. It was usually a room that was built onto his father's house. Jesus ascended to the Father, and while we are waiting for him to return, he is preparing a place for us. In my father's house are many rooms, he says, I go there to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. So the bride then waited for the groom with devotion and anticipation of his return, not knowing when that would be. The church also, we wait for Jesus with devotion and anticipation of his return, the exact time of which is unknown. The betrothal period for a Jewish wedding was usually around one year, but it could be longer. And tradition dictates that only the father of the groom could decide the time for the groom to return to carry his bride to the wedding feast. Finally, when the father of the groom gave the go-ahead, it was time for the nuptials and the celebration. The groom would return with a procession of family and friends from his father's household, with torches burning, with shouts and the shofar, the ram's horn, sounding to herald his coming. Then the groom, the bride, and the wedding party would process to the groom's father's house where they would celebrate the marriage feast and they would begin their new life together. And the parallel to the church is, of course, that only the father knows when Jesus will return. And when he does we will take part in the marriage feast of the Lamb, and then we will dwell forever with Jesus in the greatest joy that we have ever known we can't even, that we can't even imagine at this point. The parable of the 10 bridesmaids takes place during this betrothal period. The 10 maidens are part of the bride's wedding party that are waiting for the groom to return. All the women fell asleep because of the groom's delay. But sleeping, so sleeping wasn't the problem, since all ten of them did, and five of them were still wise. It was what the foolish bridesmaids neglected to do to prepare for the groom's coming before they fell asleep that was the problem. They neglected to bring oil for their lamps. The oil is the key to the meaning of this parable. And we can understand what the oil signifies by comparing our wise and foolish maidens to the wise and foolish builders of an earlier parable that Jesus told. Jesus said that those who hear and actually do what he teaches are like wise builders who built their houses on a rock. People that hear his teachings and choose to ignore them or keep putting them off are like foolish builders who built their houses on sand. When the storms of life come along as they always do, sooner or later, the houses built on a shifting foundation, collapse. Jesus also said that the ones who keep his commandments are the ones who love him, who truly love him. Doing what he says indicates that we believe him and we trust him, that he's got our best interests at heart. The wise maidens brought oil for their lamps, the foolish maidens did not. The oil signifies a genuine relationship of the heart with Jesus that results in obeying his teachings and following Jesus manifests itself in acts of love and mercy and service for others. That is what Jesus means when he tells us to be ready. Now, Jesus is not saying that we must earn our salvation with good works. If that were even possible, he would not have had to die for us. Good works do not cause salvation. They are the evidence of it. They um, are their evidence of our faith and of a grateful response to a loving savior. Dallas Willard says, the enemy in our time is the idea that God has done everything, and you are essentially left to be a consumer of the grace of God. It is crucial, he says, To realize that grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Jesus is also saying that there can come a time when it is too late. On the one hand, it is never too late to repent, for example, the thief on the cross. On the other hand, we never know which moment will be our last. While the bridesmaids were gone, the groom arrived and the door was locked a rabbinic expression that means lost opportunity. So what are we to do? Are we to always live in fear that we haven't done enough? Absolutely not. That is our tendency, of course, yours and mine, but that's not what God wants for us. That is not what it means to be ready. What it does mean to be ready is that we give priority to our relationship with Jesus and hold to his teaching while it is today because tomorrow may be too late. And this we do faithfully day after day after day. (laughs) That's right. And let us remind ourselves that we are the bride of Jesus Christ, the King of glory, who is right at this moment preparing a place for us we can look forward to His coming like a bride looks forward to her wedding day, because it's going to be that great or greater. Each time we share the Lord's Supper, when Steve ends the words of institution as he always does with the words, and he will come again, let's remember that it's true, and it could be at any moment. That's also a really great time for some prayerful self-examination. I can ask God and myself how I'm doing in my relationship with him. Is he a priority in my life, or am I just giving him the leftovers? Am I using my gifts and resources to serve him and to glorify God? Am I growing in the knowledge of God and the fruit of the Spirit? Or maybe am I doing too much and I'm not leaving any time to refill myself? I can also ask God and myself how I'm doing in my relationship with others. Is there anyone I haven't forgiven? Is there a relationship that I could take the first step in mending? Am I faithful in honoring God in my work? In my relationship with my spouse? With my children? Am I doing anything for anyone to show the love and mercy of God to the poor, the sick, the widows or orphans, the homeless or someone in prison. These are the things that Jesus asks us to do, and in doing them, we are ready. Martha Snell Nicholson was a bedridden invalid who suffered four incurable diseases. She struggled with pain for over 35 years. Through all her pain and suffering, came some of the finest Christian poetry ever written. I leave you with a poem she wrote that demonstrates the heart of a wise maiden with extra oil. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been had he had his way, And I see how I blocked him here, and I checked him there, and would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes, grief though he loves me still? He would have me rich, and I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace. While memory runs like a hunted thing down the paths, I cannot retrace. Then my desolate heart, will well nigh break with the tears that I cannot shed. I shall cover my face with empty hands. I shall bow my uncrowned head. Lord of the years that are left to me, I give them to thy hand. Take me and break me, and mold me to the pattern thou hast planned. What would you do today if you knew that tonight was the world's last night. Let us pray. Gracious, loving God, we just give you praise and thanks that we know, we can know with certainty that Jesus is coming again for us and that we can look forward to that day and in the meantime, we can show his love with the people all around us in meeting their needs as they meet ours. Thank you, oh God. Thank you so much for this marvelous way that you show your everlasting love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.